And this is the Convict Australia podcast. Thank you for tuning in. When word reached England that the colony of New South Wales was in dire need of food and supplies, that their very lives were dependent on England's help, King George III immediately authorised a ship to urgently be dispatched. A 140-foot-long ship called HMS Guardian, which was only five years old, was selected to make the journey. Lieutenant Edward Ryu was assigned as the commander of the ship. He was only 27 years of age when he was appointed, but he had years of experience, including as a midshipman to Captain Cook's third voyage of discovery in 1776. Ryu had actually joined the Navy at the tender age of 14 and had served in the French Revolutionary Wars. It took months to organise and load the ship. Firstly, they had to convert it so she could hold as much cargo as possible. At 140 feet long, she was bigger than any ship of the First Fleet and once converted, she was able to carry 900 tonnes of cargo. Botanist Joseph Banks had written to King George III recommending that a shed be built on its deck to accommodate plants and trees that could not be easily propagated by seed. He also suggested that two gardeners travel with the ship in order to take good care of all the plants. The king considered his proposal and approved it, so a shed was built on the top deck. When Governor Philip had written from Sydney Cove in 1788 begging for more supplies, He had carefully thought about the colony's needs and set out what was required. He could only hope that his letter was received well and that it was acted upon swiftly. Since sending the letter, the situation in the colony had grown wretched. They were on the brink of starvation and Philip had had no choice but to continually cut their rations. In his letter, he requested more food, clothing, tools, medicine, implements for agriculture, as well as overseers who could keep the convicts in line as the marine officers refused to do it. In addition, he spoke of their need to have convicts that had skills to further develop the colony. Every request that Philip had made was met tenfold. The Guardian was loaded up like no other ship had gone before her. Every available space was used to transport plants, trees, cloth, clothing, lumber, grain, herbs and fruit. They took 93 pots containing vegetables and a collection of the most healthy livestock, including sheep, cows, horses, goats, a few deer rabbits and poultry. The Jackson Oxford Journal remarked in May 1790 that, quote, her deck was a complete garden, end quote. Philip also had his wish of skilled convicts met. Of the 25 convicts that were chosen, there were butchers, carpenters and blacksmiths. The overseers were also highly skilled. James Smith, 
and George Austin had previously been employed as gardeners in the King's Botanical Gardens at Kew, and most of the overseers that were sent had experience in farming, with one being a surveyor and an engineer. On the 12th of September 1789, they were finally ready to sail. They had originally intended to leave Portsmouth at the end of June, but had soon discovered that they needed more time. In fact, another ship bound for Sydney Cove, the Lady Juliana, left one month before them with over 200 female convicts on board. The Guardian was a fast ship and was able to go a more direct route down the African coast and was able to overtake the Lady Juliana. They had had a relatively good run when they pulled into the Cape of Good Hope. Captain Ryu was alarmed to hear that John Hunter had visited the port earlier in the year from Sydney Cove to buy more needed food. Word was that the colony was in even bigger trouble than they thought and this spurred Captain Ryu into loading up the ship with more provisions and making a hasty exit so they could relieve their hungry friends in Sydney. He bought more cattle, horses and 150 fruit trees sailing out on the 11th of December. It was two days before Christmas when through the thick rolling fog Captain Ryu spotted a huge body of ice about twice the size of the main mast almost upon them. They were making really good time. Ryu noted in his journal, quote, the horizon became clouded all around and in less than a quarter of an hour we were again shut up in a thick, close general mist and scarce able to see the ship's length before us. From this it was apprehended there were many more such islands of ice floating in these seas which appeared very dangerous, end quote. The following day, the captain commanded his officers to lower some of the small boats they had on board and go and collect large lumps of ice that were floating near the large island of ice. They had such a high demand for water with there being so many passengers on board, not to mention all the animals and plants that needed to be watered regularly. The officers rode out towards the great island of ice, careful not to get too close, and began collecting large blocks that bobbed up and down in the water surrounding it. Their attention was focused on the water, so they didn't see a huge piece of the ice break off the highest point of the island and were startled when it came crashing down into the sea right near them. They soon had all the ice they could collect and headed back to the ship. Once on board, the thick fog returned, wrapping itself around them, so they could barely see the water slapping against the ship. All of a sudden, the entire ship shuddered and vibrated and there was an almighty crashing sound like thunder. It was a terrifying, jarring, vibrating sound that ripped through them like fingernails being scraped down a blackboard. The passengers scrambled to clutch whatever part of the ship they could in an effort to try and stay upright. The ship bashed repeatedly against the island of ice that projected further under the water than they realised and the crew sprang into action, scrambling to inspect the damage. 
The passengers were still holding on for dear life and they held their breath, hoping that it was over. But with one last terrifying tug, they felt the rudder being ripped away, heard the tiller break into pieces and like a rubber band being snapped, they were set adrift. Down in the hold, the crew were confronted with six feet of water. For the next 24 hours, the crew worked tirelessly, without pause, trying to get on top of their dire situation. They patched the hole with sailcloth and straw and pumped the water out of the hold. When they had got the water level down to two feet, they looked at each other triumphantly and allowed themselves a break. They felt they had overcome the worst until their quick fix pulled apart and with no time at all, the ship had filled to 10 feet. Every able body on board, including the convicts, threw themselves into pumping the water out. In their desperation to lighten the ship, they decided to commit to the deep all the cows, horses, sheep and all other livestock, as well as their fodder. The beautiful garden all had to go, as well as all the great lumber they had stored on board, plus all the guns. All the heavy items that they had picked up at the Cape of Good Hope, such as bags of wheat, flour, barley and peas, were all thrown overboard, anything to help lighten their load. At half past nine in the evening, one of the chain pumps broke. The wind had picked up and waves crashed over the decks. The captain ordered some of the men to shut and cover the hatchways with tarpaulin to try and keep more water from getting into the hold of the ship. As the men began to really tire, the captain split them into two watches so they could grab some rest alternately. He handed out refreshments consisting of biscuits and cheese and a dram of rum. He was very careful not to give them too much alcohol, just enough to give them some energy to keep going. Every hand was needed to help. Philip Schaefer, who was on board with his 10-year-old daughter Elizabeth, described, quote, My poor child had to stand all night in water and had to serve the men with liquor when they rested from the pumps and do other work as well, end quote. By the time the sun rose on the morning of Christmas Day, everybody on board was utterly spent. Their clothes were saturated and they had not gained any advantage on the increasing water leak. The wind had badly damaged the masts during the night and the ship continued to be beaten by waves. Ominous black clouds were forming overhead. The captain had even severely injured his hand by trying to move a heavy cask. Feeling defeated, he gave the order to hoist the smaller boats over the side of the ship and prepare for debarkation. As the crew launched the boats, Captain Ryu retreated to his cabin and began writing a letter to the Secretary of the Admiralty. Ryu had decided to stay with the sinking ship. Once he had completed writing the letter, he sealed it and handed it to Mr. Clements, the master. Then he addressed his crew, telling them, quote, 
that he was determined to continue on board in the discharge of his duty. But if they thought their lives would be more safe by trusting to their boats than by remaining with him, they were at full liberty to go and he would bear testimony to their good conduct, end quote. Of all the 123 people on board, 62 decided to remain on board or were unable to get on a boat. Amongst the people who decided to go were one third of the ship's crew. After parting ways with the Guardian and everyone who remained on board, the people on the four little boats tried to stick together and make their way back to land. The captain had put aside provisions for each boat, such as masts, sails, food, water and a compass. But they had so much trouble launching the boats with the tremendous waves crashing down upon them that they struggled to lower the provisions into them. One of the jolly boats had no provisions at all. The boats tried to get alongside each other and managed to share some of their provisions but one boat in particular had very little for all the people they had on board. As the little boats were flung around in the tremendous swell, Clements watched as one boat sunk and another disappeared from view. The two boats tried to stick together and make their way north, but it proved impossible and they were driven apart from one another. Days passed and the remaining 15 survivors huddled up to one another to try and keep warm in freezing conditions in their open boat. There was no escaping the wind, and they were constantly splashed by the icy cold seawater. Within days of leaving the wreck, they realised they were running out of water fast. They tried rationing, using the bottom of a tobacco canister to measure out each portion. They tried to survive on roughly a quarter of a litre for each person per day. After four days, their food was running low too. On day five, Clement said, quote, Many people this day drank their urine, end quote. Many stopped eating as they could not swallow it without some moisture in their mouths. Out of desperation, some succumbed to drinking seawater but the seawater didn't rehydrate them. It made it so much worse and would have caused delirium, hallucinations and vomiting. And on day nine, with some being on the verge of death, the gunner spotted a ship in the distance. Clement said, quote, Our joy at this sight was beyond expression, end quote. The French ship the Viscountess of Brittany picked them up and sailed them back to Table Bay. The journey took 15 days and when asked about the fate of the Guardian, they assumed it had sunk and all on board had perished and the sad news was sent back to London. When they had left the Guardian, it was roughly 400 leagues from the Cape of Good Hope, which is about 1,931 kilometres. Meanwhile, the men on board the Guardian spurred into action. They had no ability to steer without their rudder and they could not keep the leaking at bay. 
They were wrapped in a blanket of fog and rain and sometimes hail came down upon them. Their situation was extremely bleak, but everyone on board was determined to keep trying to stay afloat. Their lives depended on it. The men continued fighting against the ensuing water leak, but were utterly exhausted. They worked around the clock. Some used strung-up sailcloth to make beds on part of the quarterdeck, where they could grab snippets of sleep where they could. With whatever strength they could muster, they threw themselves into the hopeless battle against the rising water. The ship was going to sink. They knew this was a certainty. It was just a question of when and if they could reach land or find help before that happened. They laboured on for days and must have felt their hope fading when a Dutch packet boat was spotted heading towards them. They had been discovered just in the nick of time. Packet boats were medium-sized boats that had been designed for delivering mail. They sailed through the water at greater speed and looked quite different to other boats. They travelled on fixed routes and carried important mail, dispatches, money and financial documents. The packet boat had come from the Spice Islands and Batavia and fell in beside the sinking ship and helped guide it through the treacherous waters back to the Cape of Good Hope. When they arrived at the Cape of Good Hope, they looked a sorry sight as they staggered into the colony utterly exhausted. Most were very ill and scantily clad with swollen legs. The Guardian was well beyond repair and after one fierce gale it was ripped away from its moorings and washed up on the beach. When news reached England that the Guardian had reached the Cape there was much surprise and rejoicing. Over the next few months first the Lady Juliana followed by the ships of the Second Fleet arrived in the Cape. Captain Ryu gave them what little supplies he had left to send to Sydney. Most of the provisions had been thrown overboard and a lot of what was left was, quote, perfectly spoilt and useless, end quote. The convicts were sent with the second fleet. Captain Ryu actually wrote to Secretary Stevens commending the convicts' efforts and petitioning their freedom. And thanks to his letter the British government awarded the 20 convicts pardons on the condition that they were not to return to England before their sentence had expired. Sadly, the three other little boats were never seen again. Thank you for listening to the Convict Australia podcast. If you'd like to show your appreciation and get more involved, there are a number of ways you can. The first is by signing up to Convict Australia on Patreon and you will get some perks like the Convict Australia newsletter. Secondly, leave a review and tell your friends and family. This really does make a huge difference. And lastly, join the Facebook and Instagram group Convict Australia. All the links I've mentioned will be in the show notes. Thank you again. Till next time.